Hi, I'm Rebecca, and I'm a Pearl slash Moody. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I am a Lexi slash Izzy. I'm Teresa, and I'm just plain Moody, and this is Big Little Podcast, uh, back to talk about episode three of Little Fires Everywhere. The episode's called 70 Cents, but since we're all in our quarantine closets this week, um, I thought we'd just check in with everybody and see how quarantine's going. Rebecca, how are you coping? I'm all right. I've been believing that I've been thriving this whole time until yesterday when I was like, ooh, maybe this is forever and I don't like being inside as much as I thought I did. So (laughs) I'm really like learning to embrace the outside for the first time. I've been like jogging and walking, which is super out of character. But then I've been getting myself in a terrible situation where I exercise and I'm just not an exerciser. And then the next morning I Mm -hmm. wake up and I've got full body aches and I think I have the coronavirus for the whole day. And then I'm like, no, girl, that's just because you're really out of shape. So that's kind of been my struggle for the last week. It's a vicious loop. It is a vicious loop. You're starting all sorts of weird viral things on the internet while you're trapped at home. How's it going over there? Yeah, well, that, I mean, (laughs) you know, as, uh, as my roommate Alex so brilliantly put it, the world gave us a virus, so we went viral. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, just trying to make some art, have some fun, make people laugh, uh, not go stir crazy, <laughs> um, not just be drunk all day, you know, just the, the normal struggle. Yeah, I mean, people keep asking me how things are going, and I'm like, I work from home and I live in the woods and have no children, so basically nothing's changed. <laughs> but um, today we went outside, we it was beautiful out yesterday, which I wasn't totally expecting. So I sat outside for a while with the dogs. And then today we went for a hike and so did everybody else. So um, there were so so many people. I went for a walk on Thursday and I've never seen more people out. I had to turn around. I was like, I'm going to get the coronavirus just from walking down this path right now. It was a nightmare. So I am a runner. Like I, I actually go out for runs a lot. And this is the most annoying thing of this is that there are so many other people out exercising that never do that. And also they're Mm -hmm. like obscenely chatty, like from six feet away, they just start shouting and talking at you. And you're like with headphones on actually just trying to do your thing. And now you have all these people talking at you um, Mm -hmm. because everyone is starved for attention and human connection right now. (laughs) Yeah. We, um, I've discovered that having the dogs with us is a good way to properly social distance because the leashes are about six feet long. So <laughs> you can you can measure your distance from other humans by um, just having a dog with you. So there's my quarantine tip for everybody. It's a good one. Um, yeah. So, all right, let's get back to business. Rebecca, you want to kick off this week with a recap? Sure. So episode three is titled 70 Cents. It starts with a flashback to December 1996. BB is struggling to soothe her crying child. And I'm just going to pause quickly and say that I've been watching Schitt's Creek and it's been really, really difficult for me to write this recap and not want to write BB's bebe. So if I slip into that, I'm so sorry. But I like tried to read it over before we started recording. I'm like, this is going to be a disaster. So anyways, Baby struggles to soothe her crying child in her Spartan apartment. The baby is not breastfeeding, and when she goes to the store to buy the formula, she is 70 cents short, hence the title. 
She returns to her apartment to find the heat's been shut off, and before long, Bibi is bundling up the baby in a box and leaving her outside a fire station. In the present moment, the high schoolers have homecoming on the brain. Pearl coyly tries to get Moody interested in going, while Lexi has a more high-stakes high conversation with Brian after she jerks him to the dulcet tones of her plagiarized college essay in her car. Brian uh, just wants to get it done already and have sex and thinks homecoming would be the perfect time to do so. But Lexi wants to wait until prom like Brenda and Dylan from 90210 because of course. That evening, both Brian and Pearl dine at the Richardsons and meet each other for the first time. Elena introduces them, confident they'll have lots in common. But when Brian tries to bond with Pearl uh, of their supposed love of basketball and rap, she awkwardly brushes him off. Unfortunately, the dinner conversation inevitably veers towards race, and as a consequence, Elena divulges Pearl's difficulty with the guidance counselor, which Brian immediately recognizes as the story from Lexi's college essay. If this weren't messy enough, Lilith Fair gets evoked, and Toxic Male Trip makes a crack about Izzy's Ellen DeGeneres comparison, causing Pacey to issue a very dad-esque, that's enough, as Izzy storms off. Mia, also looking for a mess, decides to try and find Bibi's baby. She also has her first encounter with Pacey, who stops by to mow her lawn after the Richardsons received a fine for lawn grass, and there's definitely some kind of spark of chemistry between them. Mia then helps Elena set up for baby Mirabelle McCullough's birthday, and as she shares the story of the McCullough's struggle to get pregnant and their serendipitous adoption of a baby abandoned at a fire station, the fortune cookie favors start making stomach-sinking sense as Mia realizes the McCullough's baby is actually Bibi's baby. The teens decide to go to homecoming as a group on Izzy's urging, a result of Elena encouraging Izzy to change her story if she doesn't appreciate the Ellen comparisons. This decision leads to the inevitable prom dress shopping, which sees Lexi and Pearl chit-chatting in a department store dressing room. Lexi tells Pearl she inspired her Yale essay, but before Pearl can really respond, Lexi expertly deflects with a breathless offer to buy Pearl the cute dress she's trying on. She also suggests Pearl must have a mixed dad or something because she looks super mixed, and Pearl is uncomfortable, and we're uncomfortable, and it's just all very uncomfortable. Mia is smoking more of that endo and angrily making her high-concept collage art when Pearl arrives home with her brand new dress. Media, Mia immediately accuses Pearl of allowing some white, spoiled rich girl to use her as a dress-up doll and therefore own her. Pearl counters by asking what her, about her dad and his race, to which Mia responds, I'm black, you are black, you are mine, you came for me. Pearl, who is simply tired of this bullshit, tells Mia she wants a better life, and Mia storms off. It is homecoming day, and after a ten tender moment of Elena teaching Izzy how to shave her legs, the teens hit the school gymnasium to the iconic thumping of Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. Conscious of the mean girl's stares, Izzy drags Moody's alt-boyfriend onto the dance floor and tries to pantomime intimacy with him. Pearl and Moody are equally unsuccessful, slow dancing with enough room for several Jesuses. When Izzy frantically kisses her date, Moody intervenes, attempting to talk some sentence to Izzy by reminding her of her I-don't-give-a-fuck attitude. And towards the end of the dance, Brian once again tries to bond with Pearl and in the process reveals the extent of Lexi's plagiarism. Desperate to regain Brian's affection, Lexi decides to have sex with him on homecoming night in the back of the limo. Mia messily offers to photograph Mirabelle McCullough's birthday, which gives her the chance to sneak into Mirabelle's room, silence the baby monitor, and examine the baby's head for a distinctive red mark Bibi described. Just as Mia finds the mark and confirms that yes, this is Bibi's baby, Elena interrupts and takes the baby from her. <laughs> Mia leaves the party and goes straight to Bibi, who takes Mia's car and goes straight back to the birthday party. Mia accepts a ride home from her coworker and stress bangs him. Elena then learns from Mrs. Jarvis, the alpha mean girl April's mother, that Izzy sexually accosted her daughter. Elena demands Bill defend Izzy from these salacious lies, but Bill hesitates. However, any revelations are curtailed because Bibi bursts into the party, screaming that McCulloughs have stolen her baby. And that's where we end. Whew. I know. So many things are happening. So, so many, many things. things are happening. So much drama. 
But let's start with perhaps the most important, which is Lexi ruining hand jobs by reading essays over them and then trying to buy people's silence left and right in this episode. To be fair, though, like, were hand jobs there to be ruined or have they always been ruined? <laughs> oh, they've always been ruined, but this really ruined it. Um, th- this was, this to me was the most, like, ridiculous part of this episode. Um <laughs> And made me ashamed to in any way identify as any sort of Lexi. (laughs) (laughs) Just what part exactly? That she's giving out handjobs in the school parking lot or that she's ruining them with her shitty essays? No. Well, a school parking lot seems the appropriate place to do that, but that she's ruining it with her, like, shitty stolen essay. School parking lots are the only place handjobs ever have occurred ever. I'm quite sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not like a, you know, like a... Like a basement or something like during Basements a party. Too, fair bases, mm-hmm. bleachers, hockey rinks. These are the places I have heard of hand jobs occurring. <laughs> yeah, rinks. dear God, a hockey rink seems too cold for a hand job. But all oh, right. I went to a school with the brother school was a hockey school, and there were lots of frosty hand jobs going around. Mm-hmm. This is. <laughs> I'm sorry if my mother's um, listening. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, but, but then she's also using sex in a limo to manipulate her boyfriend into not hating her, which he seems to basically not be able to stand her or her family at this point. Um, and this is all sort of, this is really the first substantial look we've even had at Lexi. So like, is she a sociopath? Is she just a teenage girl? Like what's happening? All teenage girls are sociopaths. So both of those <laughs> answers are true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this episode, she really takes a turn for the unlikable, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, you see a lot more of that, of her mother in her, which just makes her, um, deplorable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but also, I, I, she, the, the manipulation, the using of, of sex with Mm -hmm. that boyfriend, that that was kind of a, a scary thing. I I felt like I didn't think that kind of shit started till college for yeah. girls. <laughs> See, I thought this was completely representative of the thought process of a 17-year-old girl that, you know, my boyfriend's mad at me and he clearly wants sex. So you're going to conflate those two and think, okay, one plus one equals I should bang this guy in the limo if I want mm-hmm. to get back at him. And yeah, I you also, know the funny thing? Go ahead. I was going to say, like, I actually respected him more than that. I I really wanted him to, because, you know, when she goes to fuck him in the limo to try to save their relationship, I really thought, like, he was going to have a higher moral ground than that. But, I mean, he is a teenage boy. But I would have, I kind of, his character seemed to kind of have a good head on his shoulders more than her. And I thought he was going to be like, no, you don't want to do this right now. Like, we're not doing this. Um, I really wanted that for him, but I mean, I also understand he's a teenage boy and is like, yeah. I'm going to get sex now. Here comes the sex. Mm-hmm. And I mean, home, what is homecoming if not just like prom? So, uh, and that's the argument at the beginning of the episode that Brian's trying to make their prom and homecoming really mm-hmm. all that different. According to Brenda and Dylan. Yes, they are. <laughs> Apparently at this school, they're not. Cause these kids are like taking limos there. Like what in the hell is that? I don't think I, I ever even but went I think to it. Was the only was homecoming was that they were all wearing short dresses. Other than that, like it could have been prom. Mm. Yeah. But theirs was the only limo I saw. Right. Did you, were there other limos uh, in that know. shot? I don't know. I don't remember. 
Yeah. Also, like, we need to talk about the dresses because as somebody who was in high school during this period, Mm -hmm. those are inaccurate. I I know. Those were, like, mid-2000s homecoming dresses. Exactly. Mm. Those were not And Izzy's was actually cute and, like, something that somebody would wear now. So I was confused. That one was way too contemporary. And back in the 90s, the dresses had totally different necklines. And they would have all had that, like, spaghetti strap, but that, like, weird, awkward rectangle high neck. And the, like, chunky shoes with the thick straps. Ooh, bad times. Yes, yeah, chunky heels. Um, They did get the hair right, the little, like, twists with the little butterfly things. Oh, butterfly clips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Love accurate. But the dresses, there also would have been all those like Asian inspired dresses with like oh, the. I know. If we're going to yep. go there with inappropriate, like appropriate cultural appropriation, like where was the kimono dresses of the late 90s? Mm-hmm. Those were this a is thing. What I'm Madonna, she did it. Everyone was doing it. Yeah, and it. The, the 90s, everything where they were like the slip dresses. The chopsticks was, in your hair. I definitely did that yeah. at one point in my. Youth. It was not that like fit and flare A line. It was. It was the the slip dress was the 90s. So I was just pissed at whoever did wardrobe for this homecoming scene for 1997 failed horribly. (laughs) The show is ruined for Carolyn now. (laughs) I was there. I was there and nobody, if you had worn that, any of those dresses, people would have been like, what the fuck are you wearing? You look like the 50s. I feel like there also would have been a lot of like baby doll dresses. Like, I don't don't think, I think I successfully avoided homecoming for my entire um, high school career. I Yes, I did, because I only ever went to one of my own high school dances. I would sometimes sneak into other schools' dances, but, and it was... Oh, Teresa, um, rebel. <laughs> it was my... I didn't like people at my school, so I just didn't bother their dance, bother going to their dances, but um, was, like, my senior prom. That was the only one I went to. So I, I didn't even know people bought, like, fancy homecoming dresses. I, I knew there were dresses, like, you got a new dress for it but i it never occurred to me that they were like cocktail level dresses right i thought it was just like the only the only information i have about homecoming has been given to me through pop culture because i went Mm -hmm. to girl school and we had no such thing so yeah so my high school didn't do a homecoming dance we had like a homecoming uh pep rally Mm -hmm. but we didn't have a dance but we did have our junior prom was a semi-formal so i was kind of holding this to the like as far as wardrobe goes to the standard of the junior prom semi-formal and then senior prom was like formal and i think homecoming too is that everybody goes versus prom is only the juniors and seniors Right, right, right. That's why izzy and moody were there or is are Mm -hmm. are moody yeah no juniors or are they sophomores I think they're sophomores. So I think they're they sophomores. say they're sophomores at the beginning. Okay. Because mm-hmm. okay. Izzy's a freshman. Mm-hmm. And then Trip is a junior and Lexi is a senior. Got her. Which brings us back to the whole Irish quintuplet thing, yes. which is... So crazy. So crazy. I That like, household, like, 15 years ago would have been an insane asylum. My boyfriend yeah. is an Irish septuplet, pretty much. So this is not surprising to me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like you laugh, How but I'm not kidding. Uteruses just not fall out. I don't understand. I, I this. think at some like, point it just it becomes like a an open door. It, there's no laboring. <laughs> oh God! All right. So speaking of laboring, let's move on to Mailing and Mirabelle. Um, so this is a pretty heartbreaking sequence, right? Um, a poor baby just can't. The baby girl. Baby. What? Well, see. I don't watch Shit's Creek, but 
Bebe's kids from the 90s, like, that's all I can think about when I see this name. So I- I'm going to mess that one up too. Um, so first of all, why does it take, like, the thing that bothered me most about this whole sequence is Mia feeling the need to, like, sneak into the party and check the kid's head for this, oh. like, this thing. Because I was like, how many... Chinese babies are being dumped at fire stations in Cleveland. Like are, it was more like uh, how ominous insane. it was. Like she like turned off the baby monitor, and then the way she like when she went to turn the baby over, I thought she was really gonna like put the baby down on her belly and like I, I just it seemed Smother I think it's, it. right. I just I think because they've done they've worked so hard to set Mia up as like a more malicious villainous character than she was in the books mm-hmm. that I got so anxious during that scene that they were going to really do something totally out of character and have her like mishandle the baby and that's what Elena was going to walk in on because it felt w- so in- like so invasive and violating oh it was a terrible scene I thought they were setting her up like setting us up to wonder if she was actually just going to steal this baby yeah and I'm something. still not sure she wasn't until who who walks in on her um, Elena Elena. Elena. Yeah. So I felt that at this point I was just watching it being like, Mia, what the fuck are you doing? Like you mm-hmm. have enough in your own life. Like stop being a meddler. Like that's my whole thing with this. Messy. I feel like she's a messy mm-hmm. bee and she'd rather get in everybody else's mess than deal with her own mess at home. That's the tea. Yeah. Yeah. And I have tons of thoughts on that going into the next episode, but staying here in this episode, like at this moment, I... I, I I just was done with Mia. I mean and and her and her smelling shit face and everything. <laughs> I just I, I really am having so much trouble having any sympathy for this character and seeing anything good or virtuous or uh like understandable or relatable about anything she does or says at all. Yeah, it's bonkers. And I think what's sort of in the book, I find this to be one of the most compelling storylines, and it probably will turn out to be so here. But um, I think Rosemary DeWitt and uh, the uh, the actress who plays BB is named Huang Lu. Yep. And they are so good. Yes. They are so good. It, like, they're, you know, Moody and Pearl level good um, actors. So... I'm really hoping they kind of save this from the melodrama a little bit. I hope so too. I mean, I I think this we should we might as well just get into this right now. This is when mm-hmm. it all comes to a head. The most compelling part of this book is this question of motherhood and mm-hmm. what one's ties as a mother are. And obviously there's then a parallel extended to Mia and Elena as they increasingly start mothering each other's children and mm-hmm. filling that gap that the other one, you know, has. So I, I think that the subtleties of this dynamic are what made this book so compelling. And I'm worried that's being lost for the sake of, you know, this is a, right. a melodrama on Hulu that everybody's tuning in week to week. You want that cliffhanger. So from a viewer standpoint, yes, it is fun and it makes you want to watch the next episode immediately, which is what these things are set up to do. But in terms of like handling this very delicate story and providing the nuance that it requires, I'm a little worried that's getting lost in the scandal of you know, BB busting down the house and screaming. Like, I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see if they get more into the gray area instead of doing what they've been doing, which has been really black and white with all the characters. So one of the questions I kind of, I, you know, there's a lot of nuance lost here. And I, th- 
which I think is inevitable when you're going from a book to a, yeah. to a TV show. But so first I want to ask Carolyn this question, but like knowing what you know now, whose side are you on in, in terms of like who gets to keep this baby? Um, you know, I'm really conflicted with this. I guess I, I'm with, uh, I, I don't know. I, I honestly, I honestly don't know. I mean, I guess kind of Linda because, but I, I sort of want like the best of both worlds. I'm like staring (laughs) around here because I can't really decide knowing what I know now. I want like Linda, but also to have um, BB like be involved in her life. Yeah. Can it be an open adoption? Yeah. Because I honestly, genuinely feel like that's the best for the. This baby is a scripted drama. Yeah. No. <laughs> it can. Ah! <laughs> well, that's that's what I felt through the entire book. Like, just giving BB back the baby solves no problems, right? She still has no money and no support system, and Mia's probably not going to hang around to like actually help her out in any meaningful way, but is going to blow up her life by telling her where this baby is. Right. So like the best possible solution would have been that she could still have her biological mother in her life. While this is what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 I, I totally agree. I, I find myself in this episode and, and, and the next um, really just kind of wishing that that would be, the resolution we could come to for this. Mm-hmm. Um, although that does seem pretty unrealistic and a little bit fairy tale like But, you know, I, honestly, it, it's, it would be the best for this kid because I, I, I think that, that, that that's like the only thing that could help at this point. I mean, but you know I'll push us towards happen. devil's advocacy here and say, like, they're never going to, in this world, in this context, they're never going to have that outcome. So if we're just looking right. at one or the other... Who, at this point in episode three, do you feel is more deserving of the baby? Linda. Linda. Okay. What about you, Teresa? Just based on the show. Yeah. Just based on the show, I feel the same way. Like, I can't help but think, like, you have not solved the problems at heart. Like, you know, I was listening to another podcast that did a brief discussion of this. And one of the things they were talking about is that this show sort of seems – I don't want to get into this too much because I've got it on – on the table for the next episode but this idea that all that matters is this biological bond it doesn't matter that this woman like she really did the right thing right she could not take care of this baby and she gave it up right she maybe didn't go about it the right way and of course she's upset that she well actually isn't it completely legal and it is now i don't you I don't think it was then, no. true, but it yeah. is completely legal, and right. you do surrender custody. Mm-hmm. You can leave a baby, no questions asked, at a fire station or a police station. Right. Yes. Now you um, can. Now you can, yeah. but I don't think that was the case back then. But I think part of the reason it's legal now is because people did it. Like, they I also took think that's part of the reason Celeste Ng set the book in 1997 and not in the present day. Yeah. There's really no other mm-hmm. reasons for this other than that. I, otherwise, it's just a choice. Right. Right. Um, I assumed that she did it because that was the period in which she grew up in this area. Could be. Um, 
I, I don't know. I, I have not actually like read much more about her than when I previously did. But I kind of thought like she was just uh, writing what you know, you know, going. Yeah. Yeah. Going with the nostalgia of setting this in, a, in the era in which she was there. I think also there are some other reasons because that maybe Carolyn doesn't know about yet. But, you know, there are reasons you wouldn't want someone to be able to do an easy Internet search on anybody. You know, oh, that's true. Which. Oh, the, yeah. Um, but so, all right, I think we beat that horse to death. Sorry, Brian, you can cut this out if you want. Let's, uh, <laughs> so let's move on to the fact that Izzy is apparently a lesbian now. Um, she sexually accosted her friend, which I'm going to assume means the friend was kind of into it, but they got caught and now the friend is shunning her. So, but I hated that word choice. It's a very problematic word choice. So weird. Does anyone, um, do you have any predictions about what we're going to learn here about what actually happened with Izzy and this friend? Or are they just going to let it linger out there and never tell us? No, I think it's exactly what Rebecca said. I think that, you know, she and the friend were involved in, you know, like what could have been to the friend experimental or both of them experimental Mm -hmm. and like then uh either somebody else found out or like walked in on them and that other girl just in order to save face and and you know not have to have the stigma of being a lesbian in this high school world decided to turn this in, uh, against Izzy I mean that and that was a um, huge stigma and I think in our present moment it's hard to sort of remember that how prevalent mm-hmm. and terrifying it was. I was in girl school from middle school and high school. And I remember in middle school, like the worst implication that could have ever been implied was that you were a lesbian because it threatened the dynamic of all the girls together. And yet I also mm-hmm. know for a fact that the amount of experimenting that was going on was completely contrary to the party line, which is that like being a lesbian was akin to like being the devil. And this was in a girl's school. And, and this was not in the 90s. This was in the, you know, the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So I, I yeah, think that, I, like, that's something that we have to keep in mind now. And this idea that – one of my favorite examples for this is you look at um, 21 Jump Street, that movie, the remake they made with the – what's his name? Channing Tatum. And they go back to school and try and, like, call someone, you know, the F word or something. And they're like, whoa, man, that's not cool. We don't do that anymore. But the way that, like, yeah. that's changed and now you would get bullied for, like, not being woke. But back in the day, like, the level of – like, and this is what I was trying to say earlier is that Lexi's trying to – be an ally is wokeness for the 90s like as much as like we cringe Mm -hmm. like I I truly do think that like Lexi is putting in more work to be racially sensitive than some of her peers are and just because the younger kids are a little more aware of how cringe it is doesn't mean that Lexi's not you know trying to be better than the the norm Mm -hmm. I agree and the for Izzy um this in this episode it made me think back I had a good friend in high school who uh you know, I went to a high school that was like really open and and had like an LGBTQ club and um but it still was different. It still was a very different scenario for a girl coming out than a totally. boy coming out as gay. Um and I had a friend who was struggling with issues of coming out and it actually led her uh she ended up with severe depression and um ha- had to 
leave school for a while and deal with a lot of issues. And a lot of it stemmed from the fact that she couldn't feel comfortable with her own sexuality and coming out, even in a very welcoming community. And it reminded me, watching this episode reminded me of that a lot. And it was something I hadn't thought about in a long time because things are different now. Or we, I, I hope that they're a lot more I hope I hope it's a lot easier for kids. And from what I hear and see, I think it is. Well, what I think I you bring up sort of an interesting point, because I was thinking about this, too, where like a lot of the, you know, girls I went to school with who were lesbians did seem to have a harder time. And part of it, I always sort of thought was that was just who they were. Right. They were prone to, you know, right. they suffered from depression and there were was going to. That, but yeah. but. When I think when I think about it, I think about the boys I knew who came out as gay in high school. They had a really hard time, probably in middle school and early on in high school. And by the time everyone gets a little older, um, that sort of went away. And and I think there's two things at play here. One, a lot of the boys I knew just it's like everyone knew they were gay from the time, you know, that we were in elementary school and they got bullied all through middle school, even though they had not come out yet because everyone sort of assumed they were gay. But yeah. then by the time we got to, you know, 1997, 98, 99, like our my um, senior year of high school, Will and Grace was out. Right. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, where, why do all these girls want to be friends with my, my yeah. best friend now? Like, so <laughs> like what's Sorry, happening? What? <laughs> yeah. I was like, you so, hated you know, him forever. The, totally. I, I do think like things like Will and Grace were revolutionary. Uh, I mean, this show deals with like Ellen being on TV. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting and what you see with the character of Izzy, it's, Yes, she is experiencing some bullying, but that is because of sort of her expressing her sexuality with a friend who was not into it. Like, clearly that girl is not. So it's a different kind of bullying. But I found that a lot of, for what I saw, that girls who were coming out as being a lesbian, when I was in high school, it was more, it was this, like, conflict with themselves more. And that's what Mm -hmm. you're seeing with Izzy too. Um, I definitely think that it, it was like, yeah, Will and Grace was making gay men seem fun and like you needed to grab one as a best friend. Mm -hmm. But that never happened Um, for lesbians. And it really, I mean, the L word is really the mm -hmm. only like definitive lesbian for a piece of pop culture versus like stuff like queer eye for the straight guy has been around for ages. So I think that culturally we're so much more comfortable with the idea of uh, a young openly gay male versus a young openly gay female like I I have friends that were lesbians that were told for years it's just you know it's a phase you get that a lot more mm-hmm. as a woman and it seems more totally. fluid because I was you know just girls kiss say. other girls and spin the bottle and when you think of a threesome you think traditionally of two girls and a guy we have this just you know you can flirt with it and and you know think about it but you can't actually be that fully and I I don't even know now if we're really there with the same level of cultural acceptance with and I'm, I'm talking like in the cultural mainstream, like what we see in pop culture. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think the idea that people just sort of tell girls that it's just a phase is, you know, part of that is because of pop culture, right? But, and, you know, the Anne Heche and, um Exactly. And Ellen mm-hmm. relationship where Anne Heche, you know, she 
eventually married a man. Even Ani DeFranco, the like queen of all lesbian music, she she was always she always identified as bisexual. She never identified as a lesbian. But Marissa Cooper um, on the OC, never forget, she had that relationship mm-hmm. with the character played by Olivia Wilde, and that was just again another. She, they really yeah. tried to make it seem like it was going to go somewhere and be meaningful, and then it was just another sort of oh, just crazy Marissa having a phase. Well, and that's like Izzy here in this dance scene where she's trying to, uh, you know, she's just trying to fit in. She's trying to assimilate by having, you know, getting all handsy with a guy on the dance floor. Who's also definitely not straight. Oh, yeah. That is also, yeah. She's getting handsy with her, like, gay best friend. He doesn't know (laughs) it yet, but that's what he is. Yeah. Yeah, that whole scene was such a train wreck for her. And, like, your your heart just breaks for her. But that, it is, um, I, I think that the whole, all of the, the writing and the performance of this young actress I said before and about talking about the last episode is so well done. Mm-hmm. Um, because she it is really expressing a lot of that, the inner conflict with that, I think, really well. So this is another layer that's been thrown on by the writers, right, of this show. Yes. It wasn't in the book. And oh, it isn't. No, and so um, guys, I can't wait. To I know the book club <laughs> episode is going to be lit. It's like a season-long trailer for the book club episode. I know, um, but I actually think, in some ways, it kind of works here because um, it almost like it feels like Elena wants to be accepting of Izzy once she knows and. It almost helps her understand where she's coming from better instead of just assuming that she's being like rejecting her and everything she stands for. She's like, oh, she's actually dealing with something. She's not just she doesn't just hate me. You know, did anyone else get that vibe? Oh, yeah, for sure. But I also get a lot of like deeply internalized homophobia from Elena that is like restricting her from actually you know, addressing it and having a frank Mm -hmm. conversation with her instead of just like she keeps having these like subversive conversations implying stuff without actually being like do you want to talk about your sexuality you know there's just and again this is a consequence See, of the I, time I don't even think it's like homophobia on Elena's part I think she literally is just so obsessed with everything being perfect but isn't that homophobia in, in a way to say that if like your sexuality doesn't mm-hmm. align with that that's outside of her understanding of perfect I guess but in her own psychotic way it's just it's not even seeing that aspect it's her just trying to make everything fit in square holes even if it's a round peg and it's just I want to say that's what she said so badly right now I know (laughs) I don't actually get that vibe though because I think what she wants is for Izzy to feel comfortable talking to her about it and I can understand not it's obviously a sensitive subject and she she does she doesn't come out and say hey are you a lesbian and that's okay if you are but she is sort of you know nipping around the edges of it trying hoping that Izzy will talk to her and she's sort of disappointed that she feels like she can't and no, obviously says- that's her own fault for making her feel like she can't but i think honestly if she just came out it would almost be better for everybody well she says to her um, that, you know, you get to rewrite the story. You decide what people are saying. It, mm-hmm. She wasn't, I got the vibe, like, she wasn't saying, like, hey, talk to me. Mm-hmm. Like, it was much more, um, you know. You hey, can, here's you how to deal with this. these rumors. Here's how to, yeah, yeah, here's how to not be bullied. Just be somebody else. Yeah, and, but first, but first she says, is it true? And 
And Izzy says it's not. And that's when she says, okay, then you have the power to change the story. Yeah, if but any mom. Untrue. And looking at that kid's face and knowing everything that that mom knows, she knew. And she was just, mm-hmm. I, I found that scene to be so. I think there's a like, big difference between is it true too and like it's okay if. Yes. There, yes. There's such a big yeah, difference no. between those two. I'm not saying she's doing a good job of trying <laughs> no. to have this conversation. We didn't think you were. What I'm, what, what I'm yeah. saying is that I think she could honestly understand. Because at the point that that conversation happens, she doesn't know about the best friend. Yeah. Right? And she doesn't know that yet. All she knows is that the kids at school are saying yeah. she's gay. And right. so she's like, if it's not true, then here's how you handle it. But I think... Like, she, honest to goodness, like, if she would feel better about her relationship with Izzy, not the rest of it, but she would be like, oh, now I get it. She's been dealing with all this stuff. It's not just about her hating me. Yeah. But who knows? What well, we've got several more more episodes to see if they figure it out. <laughs> we sure do. Really quick, before we leave the Izzy thing, I started mm-hmm. noticing this in this episode, and I don't know if it's just me being crazy, but do you guys feel at all that the deepening of the relationship between Mia and Izzy, like there is a, the show is at least trying to put some undertones of Izzy having like a crush on Mia more so than just Absolutely. a mother figure? Am I, am I delusional yes. or do other people feel this way? No, no, it's definitely, I have been picking up that vibe and uh, I also feel like they're going to, they Mia... Um, there is like that flashback scene, I think in like episode one where she's like laying with like cuddling with a woman on that subway and that like fever dream she has or that nightmare that she wakes up from. And I, there's all this reference to like, you know, Mia kind of being into open sex and all this stuff. So I'm wondering, I I don't know. They're just kind of painting it with that vibe. I'm, I've been totally picking up on that as well. Rebecca, I I sincerely hope it doesn't go there, but I just, there's been no, but and to that same note, like the way that they filmed the interaction between Mia and Pacey slash bill had that same sort Mm -hmm. of like, what are they trying to suggest here? Are we supposed to be reading into this or is this part of what the show is trying to do? Is that it wants us to kind of throw these red herrings? And I I don't know. It's it's all becoming very sexually charged in a way that's making me uncomfortable. (laughs) Well, they actually, so I've been re-listening to the book um, while we're while we're watching and taping this and they the Richardson kids actually do kind of tease Izzy about having a crush on Mia. Okay. Mm, and okay. and it sort of says and yeah, what else would you call it? But it doesn't seem sexual, you know, it's sort of like Right. You know, the term girl crush I know is po- problematic in its own way, but that's sort of like this is but who is I want to be. But it is a thing too. I yeah. mean, yeah. we can call it what you want, but that that mm-hmm. idolization of an older woman that's influential in right. her life that's not your mother is a huge thing for a young mm-hmm. girl. Yeah. And but I feel like the show to, is trying to like make it sexual and I'm like, please don't. Yeah, no. It that's is. And I mean, and it's different than we see Pearl kind of has that with um, with Elena. Oh, there yeah. is an element of um, like admiration that mm-hmm. Pearl, you see Pearl look to Elena as you know, she's kind of like that mother that she sort of wishes she has. She has that Mm -hmm. life that she is sort of longing to have in some ways. So it's this interesting, this show to me is just constantly about those like juxtapositions, those like direct comparisons and how they 
you know, make us see these things side by side. And as these two daughters struggling with their relationship with their own mothers sort of gravitate towards the other parent in this weird, like, mom swap scenario. So there's an element of that. I want to talk about the mom swap scenario a little bit more because um, I think I alluded to this in our last episode, but there's a scene here where Izzy comes out all dressed up for the dance and she's cut herself shaving her legs and Mia happens to be there and she just gives her this really disappointed, disapproving look that almost sort of shames. You conformist. Yeah. Yeah. It really sort of shames Izzy in that moment. And you're like, oh, she is just as controlling as Elena is. She just wants her kid to be something else. And her worldview is, you know, more typically by our current standards cooler. So I think for a long time, Mm -hmm. we've kind of been agreeing with it. And now you're like, oh, no, no, this is the same thing. It's just we are conditioned to think Elena, Mm -hmm. strict suburban sort of racist housewife is worse than Mia being like, ooh, you're not, you know, you're going to go You're to this cool norm enough. core homecoming, like loser. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm in my, my Velvet Underground t-shirt. You're going to go smoke some more of my weed. Bye. Yeah. Like- <laughs> At that moment, I felt so bad for Izzy, this mm-hmm. like woman that she admires is like judging her for wanting to put on a dress and like shave her legs. And also like, isn't she a little old to be like shaving her legs for the first time? I mean, even if she is sort of coming into this new sexuality, like I don't, I don't know. I mean, it also bothered me because her legs were clearly already shaved. And let me tell you, when I shaved my legs for the first time at 15 it wasn't just like a light sprinkling like the first time is a rough thing so oh god i didn't believe that i basically like cut myself to the bone on my shin once when i oh it was horrific good Um, thing i don't do that anymore like no i still do that like i i leave the shower and it like looks like a murder scene in there sometimes oh i just straight up do not shave my legs anymore like you'll maybe be lucky in the summer if i'll do it once and i'm over it over it so let's give it let's talk for a minute about pacey aka bill richardson um i think joshua jackson is doing a great job and he's also like the only real ally in this house for izzy so i just like want to give him a hug yeah um he's really kind of blowing me away as an actor in this i have not really thought much about him uh as an actor ever even when he was on dawson's creek and here i i really I'm really enjoying his performance, and it is making me want to see more of him in things. So I'm excited for uh, for that. No, I totally agree. I mean, I've been a fan of Joshua Jackson um, really since I got back into him watching The Affair, and he just did fantastic, fantastic work on that show. So I know he's got the range, and I think he's really delivering on Sympathetic Dad, while also being kind of complex. And I do think we'll talk a little bit this in the next episode. He does start to show more of, you know, a prickly opinionated side in the next episode but up until this point he you know he is that kind of like cuddly bear bear reprieve to Mm -hmm. elena's hard edges yeah shout out to pacey we want to see you in more things we love you um let's talk about the title of the show for a minute 70 cents because bb can't buy formula to help her baby because she's 70 cents short but and some horrendous horrendous in a uh, convenience shop worker just like yell basically throws her out of the store it's like lady you can't dig into oh my a, god into your your purse and get 70 cents for this lady. yeah that's the special and, place in hell for women who don't help other women right there that yes. woman is going to that place and then we see izzy trying to get on a bus at at the end of this episode um in the middle of the night after leaving the dance and she's 70 cents short but this nice kindly old man lets her on the bus and helps her get home 
is this good or bad writing? See, this is that side <laughs> I by was side hoping again. that was the question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, see, here's what I'm saying. So I don't mind it in this show because I feel like they do... I don't know if this is in the book like this, but in the show, it makes it, there's this very like interesting, the way that they can film it and the visual and it, it kind of like drives this point home. And it does make you think. I mean, there have been a lot of times in my life, I feel like I have gotten the benefit of the doubt or gotten something that somebody else may not have had just because of situations or the way you look or the way that you're presented or a number of things. And I'm always conscious of that and thinking about that. Um, and, and I, in this moment when that happened and this like kind of episode sort of circled back around and she didn't have those 70 cents for the bus, I was, I, I, I was like, wow, all right, here's that big side by side moment. <laughs> okay. But did it have to be the same amount? It was a little cliche. If it had been different for, amounts, I would have hated it less. But it's the same as in the last episode where, you know, the two, you had the the daughter, like, waiting for the mom to come in and the mom waiting, you know, to communicate in with her daughter. Like, it's kind, it's the same. Like, it's just, it's, at this point, it's kind of what I expect from each episode. I expect this juxtaposition moment, this side-by-side comparison. So I'm just accepting it and waiting for it now each time. This really felt like it was veering into the crash territory that we talked about last week with the just like, let's hit you over the head with this, um, this, uh, you know, inequality in the world. Like, I get it. It exists. I, I don't deny any of that. I just feel like there had to be a less offensively in your face way of showing it. That's, I mean, like I wanted to go there with all the racial stuff, but I wanted to be the nuanced, you know, mm-hmm. gray area, not this like 70 cents versus 70 cents. One mother versus another mother. Like I don't want identical twins. I want fraternal twins. Like it has to be believable. And they're just setting these foils up too carefully. And it, it does take you out of it. Like I, it doesn't allow me to connect with the characters as much as I want to, because I'm so conscious of the way the, you know, direction is moving the story. And you shouldn't be aware of that. That's that's sloppy story. Well, yeah. I think in general, like these, it, it is harder to connect with these characters and to accept any of all, this as a reality in a lot of ways for me. I mean, not like big little lies, not necessarily that those were people that you wanted to be friends with, but it was more of a real world than this. This almost has that feeling of, uh, it, it there is kind of much more of a fabricated, it's like a, a story being told. It's like a parable, like a, you know, there's definitely something more preachy here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So let's talk about bad parenting for a moment. I, ju- I just want to run through some of the worst parenting of the show, if you guys don't mind, um, <laughs> and chime in with your own, but Absolutely. We're going to go back to Elena for a minute, you know, who tells Izzy that everybody is telling a story, whether they admit it if or not. And if they're saying something untrue, then you should change the story. And this angers me perhaps the most because that's how PR works, not how journalism works. And she equates it to like her job when she tells Izzy this. And I'm just like, lady, not only are you a bad parent, but you're a bad journalist. Um Then we have Mia, you know, screaming at Pearl over this dress. 
and saying, I made you a bike. I gave you four walls. Like, <laughs> isn't that enough for you? Which is like, yeah, oh, that no, was, that doesn't that make up for life. a lifetime of borderline neglect, Mia. Um, so do you guys have any bad parenting moments of the week you'd like to share? I mean, I guess I already expressed, like, I just felt like that whole car scene between Elena and Izzy yeah. was really cringeworthy for me. It was another example of, like, a par- of a parent or an adult just not connecting in the correct way and not saying, like, I'm here for you. It was just more of her pontificating, you know, and mm-hmm. and and just doing more of her me, me, me talking and giving the kid horrible advice overall, I felt. So, and and then I guess like Mia and just everything that she's doing with uh, butting into BB's life and minding mm-hmm. somebody else's life and parenting and to- being completely oblivious to, I feel like she's just oblivious to her own bad parenting. So, mm-hmm. which is terrifying. Bar none for me, it's Mia yelling at um, Pearl and using, basically invoking slavery to shame Mia, uh, shame Pearl from going prom dress shopping or homecoming dress shopping with Lexi. Like, that was just unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And and then having the tone deafness to then turn around and say, you're mine. I own you. Like, where the writing in that just like my eyes hit the ceiling. I'm like, I don't know what you're trying to accomplish in this moment right now, writers of the show, but I am estranged and confused. Well, Mia's general sense of ownership over a child, like that she owns Pearl and that mm-hmm. BB, uh, you know, owns uh, Mei Ling because she gave birth to her. I mean, it, yeah. it's that to me is, is an odd, uh, that's an odd sentiment. Like, I don't feel like you own a child. It's the same. Like, you don't own a pet. Like, you care for them. You love them. You nurture them. You're you're helping them. But it's not, it's not an ownership, whether it's a child or a pet. Like, that just seems like such a weird thing to me, to be so possessive in this terrifying, crazy way that she is. Yeah, I feel like if we're comparing these two uh, and their bad parenting, it's like Elena is bumbling through in the way a lot of parents bumble through when they have a kid that they don't really know what to do with. Whereas Mia is like off the walls, crazy borderline psychotic with the way she's treating this poor child. So if I'm giving the award out this week, like Mia's getting the bad parent award. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I, I definitely think that uh, if I had to choose which one I'd want as my parent, knowing Mm -hmm. they're both you know knowing everything that we know thus far uh i i would still choose elena over mia i mean you're gonna end up like i said last time you're gonna end up in therapy either way but i feel like with mia like you're gonna be really really stressed out and you're never gonna be able to please her yeah i'd agree at least elena you could like topically appease I'm not going to go so far as to say that I'm picking one or the other in this moment, but for this episode, for sure, yeah. Mia is the worst parent. Yeah. So, and Elena has that nice redemptive moment where she teaches Izzy how to shave. So I think Elena does, you know, have a, a reprieve for being the worst this week. Yeah, I think Elena is just trying to figure out how to connect with Izzy and she's not being able to do it. And like this shaving the legs thing is something she knows, but she she's never had a kid like this. She doesn't know how to deal with her, you know, and... 
she's trying to figure it out, but totally. she's not doing a great job all the time. Anyway, so the end of this episode brings us to the end of the f- those first three episodes that dropped on the first day the show came out. And so I want to talk a little bit about the impressions of the show so far. Um, I've come to the conclusion that I think the reason they dropped all three of these at once is because... If they didn't, you would have no idea what the story was actually going to be about. And you may or may not have bothered watching past the first episode. Yeah, I think they would have had a retention problem if they hadn't dropped it with the big cliffhanger on episode three. Because it really did did make you want to watch episode four. And I didn't necessarily feel that way going from one to two and two to three. Yeah. Carolyn, what do you think? Yeah, I agree that I think uh, episode three was a turning point for me as far as my interest now, I, I have like an invested interest in the show. Um, episode one, I could have taken taken or left. Episode two, meh. But by episode three, I, I, I found I really needed to watch four and, and get more. Um, so that's good. And so I guess it's a good thing that they did. Yeah, I, I think that it's for the best they released a whole bunch at once because I don't think it would have necessarily held everyone's attention in that first episode. I think in general, too, I like the show more than I thought I was going to after watching the trailers. Um, I Those really scared me. They looked bad. It made the show look bad. And I think, I mean, is this my favorite show I've ever watched? No, but I think it's better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I think the trailers were really poorly done. I don't think that they really showed what the show was about. Um, right. I, you guys had talked about how um, the kids were a big part of the book. And in the trailer, you didn't really... They are a huge part of the show. And they are the best part of the show, to be honest. And the trailers didn't really give us any of that. Um, so I I am grateful. I'm, I am enjoying the show. And I'm grateful that we are doing this because... Honestly, left my own devices. I might have watched episode one, maybe episode two, and I might have checked out. Yeah. Rebecca, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it makes complete sense that they would drop three like that to get you completely invested in the story. And it allowed them three episodes. With the pacing of the release. To have you get invested in the characters more so than the plot, which I think this is such a character-driven piece. Um, I initially thought they dropped all three at once because they were worried about, you know, interest with everything that's going on in the world and a lot of people have been doing that because people are hungry for content but now I think that was probably the plan all along now knowing what we know about the three episodes interesting because like I assume that they did that mass drop because of you know they have a captive audience of people in quarantine needing needing things to binge um so I'm I would be interested in knowing if that was the plan all along um but that being said still I mean a lot of shows kind of like start out slow um I, I joked recently on the nose, the WNPR show that we're all on, that I have started this horrible new trend of if I'm going to get into a new show, I watch like the third episode or the second episode mm-hmm. and go from there and then go back and watch the pilot episode or the first episode because I do see... That's a sociopath thing to do. <laughs> I understand. And I know like a lot of people are upset by my habit here, but it is helping me get past because I do feel like there's this like uphill climb with shows in that first episode and there's just so much like information you're given and and just all this like build of these characters and introductions and I just kind of want to like jump into it 
and and get a sense and sort of know what I'm getting into and get into the meat of the sandwich and then I'll you know if if I'm interested I can go back and pick up the pieces but there's never really anything that important oftentimes in the first episode that like if you jump in on the second you kind of get all those pieces and I think one of the the best examples of this is Grace and Frankie on Netflix which is a show that I love and I've heard people say that they really can't get into it and I'm like you know what the first episode or two it's a lot Mm -hmm. of scene setting you don't really they don't it takes a while for everyone to get into their rhythm with the character and that show to me is hilarious I cannot stop laughing at it no many how no matter how many times I watch it but if you watch the first couple of episodes you may not feel that way well, Rebecca referenced Shit's Creek, and Shit's mm-hmm. Creek, the first Same episode, show. is like pretty much it's shit. And uh, I mean, it's not like total shit. It's still funny, but it's not nearly as good as if you go into like episode three and you still get the premise. Um, That's so. I literally had watched Shit's Creek the first two episodes of Shit's Creek maybe six times each before I actually watched more of it this year and then I just couldn't stop watching it. But I had, Stephen had watched it years ago when it first came out and I just couldn't get into it and now I am. See? So my theory is not that crazy. It really actually is a good way. Honestly now, like I understand it. So I'm a sociopath too Jump into that pool. Yeah, jump into the pool. Don't just put a foot in. You're going to think it's cold. The Kool-Aid tastes great. Yeah. We're going to, I'm going to have to do this because for years I've been like, I don't understand why everybody likes Schitt's Creek so much. Like everyone whose taste I share, who I think is funny, who I think is smart, loves this show. And I've been like, what am I missing? This first episode makes me want to explode no, my TV. No, you got to, you got to go in. Yeah, that's how I feel too, Teresa. To you just have to keep going. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to 90s spotting because there are so many things to choose from. In this episode. Um, Carolyn, what's your favorite 90s reference? Uh, In this episode, I have to go with Beverly Hills 90210. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, and you know, the funny thing to me, like I feel like by 1997, I wasn't even watching that show anymore. Yeah, they were like all like 32 years old and living in an apartment on the beach. They weren't even in high school Right, so this was kind of a weird misplaced reference I felt by 1997 because mm-hmm. to me I was watching that show full-on in middle school yeah and uh but it was a huge part of my I mean I, I just like fantasized this life of being a teenager in high school because of that show um and and so I have to choose that moment and that reference Rebecca what do you think what's your favorite 90s reference Mine is for sure when Lexi and Brian get in their first little tiff at the beginning of the episode about the plagiarized essay. This is after the handjob when they're getting ready to go into homecoming. And she tries to soothe him by saying that he looks hot like Tyson Beckford. And I hadn't heard Tyson Beckford's name (laughs) in 10, 15 years. And that sent me down a whole rabbit hole. He was this like really hot Ralph Lauren model that then was linked to Kim Mm -hmm. Kardashian. It was this whole thing. So I thought that was, you know, pretty authentic. They went deep with that one. He was also, I believe, in the Unbreak My Heart video by um, Tony Braxton. He's the guy on the motorcycle. Tony Braxton? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, There were so many things. I mean, there was Chumba Wumba, Someone Makes Fun of Sugar Ray, Moody Displays, an Obsession with Before Sunrise that is bordering on, like, 
I, I, I don't know, like psychotic. <laughs> he is like he. So have wants you guys to seen this movie? This I've movie never so heard bad. of it before. I have never seen Before Sunrise, and I had to Google it when watching this. No, um, I haven't seen Before Sunrise, but I know of Before Sunrise because it's actually part of a trilogy where they just these two people keep meeting like before sunrise or after sunset or like uh, i don't know mid morning i don't they keep, it's like they're all it's all about so he's trying to seduce her this is like a i'm trying to show you that i'm both artsy and i want to exactly. make out with you okay i hate it mm-hmm. oh yeah before midnight wow this is wild yeah and and they're like austrian slash american and it's ethan hawk mm-hmm. uh who is a and classic. julie delby yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, he's very 90s. I mean, that tracks. Um, mm-hmm. But I think my favorite my f- my favorite reference um, is one that's very personal where um, Pearl is telling, is it Moody, about what happens in a separate piece for English oh. class, which is a book I hated with a burning passion. And I, I don't think it's from the 90s, but since I had to read it in high school in the 90s, as far as I'm concerned, it Wait, is. I have um, never heard of this book before. Yeah, but, that's because you are just young enough that they would have, like, taken that out of school curriculum. Um, a separate piece was definitely... Uh, that was definitely curriculum reading. And I also hated it. <laughs> I also, yeah, Brian loves this book. Hey, Brian's going to get mad at me again because he doesn't like it when I make fun of the things he likes on, on this podcast. But um, he, like, I feel like, one, it's a very, it's a boy's book, right? Because it's a it's a book about. It takes place at a boy's, boy's school. school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a, a I feel like it's, school. I feel like it's what you read if your teacher doesn't do Catcher in the Rye. Um no, see, we read it as a follow-up to Catcher in the Rye. Oh, really? And had to compare, yeah, and had to compare Holden Caulfield to Finney. Um, I remember that. <laughs> I can remember writing a paper comparing and contrasting those two uh, literary teens. That's interesting because we actually read it either before or after Lord of the Flies. So mm. same general idea. And I remember going to my English teacher. Boylet. Yeah, after that and being like, are we done with, like, the dude books now? I can't take this anymore. And then, luckily, we read To Kill a Mockingbird. No, it's time for Hemingway. You read To Kill a Mockingbird in high school? Yeah. Oh. We read that in, like, junior high. Really? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's weird. It it, it was weird, yeah. Um, Newton, I went went to Newton Public School. They're like, here, middle schoolers, here's some rape. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We read mm. To Kill a Mockingbird in mm-hmm. seventh grade. I can remember because my seventh grade English teacher, uh, he looked like Conan O'Brien, actually, Mr. Grant. And I can remember mm. reading that. We also read like Romeo and Juliet. I feel like Newton Public Schools were really into like pushing the curriculum and trying to, like I said, I mean, they, they were just like trying to push kids into Harvard. It was a disgusting, intense climate. Um, and I think it was, I think ninth grade, I feel like was a separate piece and, uh, and, and the catcher in the rye, but, um, yeah, a separate piece, like, and the big, the big takeaway for a separate piece, what she doesn't go into, she says, cause he says, oh, what happens? She doesn't even give him, he's going to fail the test. That's not just what yeah. happens. He doesn't just break his leg. He fucking dies from a broken leg. 
I don't remember. Uh, I, the broken leg is the only thing I remember about that book. I have no idea what happened in the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, Finney dies from a broken leg. He gets that um, that blood clot that happens. Very mm. rarely, if you break your femur, it causes this uh, bizarre condition that basically like An embolism? Stops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched a lot of ER. That's what I did with my time as a child. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. And I went on a Hulu binge of it like last year. Um, <laughs> I also, I, I just want to drop a little thing here from Brian, who, I, as I said, is a couple years older than me and therefore more thoroughly ensconced in the 90s than I am. And he says, it's like a 20-year-old is styling this based on what they think the 90s looked like. And I think he is spot on. Like, Oh, that is so spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that that like exactly loops us back to like the beginning where I went on a rant about the uh, semi-formal attire for these girls. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like close. Like, they got some things accurate, but in other ways, it's just, it, it's it's totally incorrect. Um, I don't know why. I mean, they couldn't get, like, an actual millennial to do the styling for this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on. Um, all right, so what's the best song of this episode? Um, I'm going to have to go with Tub Thumping, Chumbawamba. That's literally the only song I remember from this episode, so now I'm No, you, also, yeah, I was gonna love, say, can, yeah. we, no. can we all say that? Um, yeah. Love Fool by the Cardigans was going to be my second choice because oh, that, yeah. to me, so that was used in, um, I think it was in Romeo and Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann one. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on the soundtrack for that. But also, like, that, I feel, was such, I remember that being played, like, all over the place. Um, and I do love that song. But, I mean, come on. Tub thumping is, that. that's just that is like 90s. That is pure 90s glory. And also I need to shout out to Sugar Ray, who I actually saw in concert last oh, fall when I went to Disney last World. Fall? Don't worry, I did not pay for this. When my family, we took my five-year-old nephew to Disney World. Were you for, paid? Well, listen, so we went to Disney World last fall, my family. For, we took my, my, I have nephews who are five and two. And we were in Disney last fall, and it was the Food and Wine Festival at Epcot, and Sugar Ray played at that. And I, it I was, cannot believe that man is still touring. Isn't he supposed to be hosting Entertainment Tonight or something? Well, I don't know, but it was pretty wild. And my brother and sister-in-law and I were just having a moment with, like, everyone else, every other, like, 90s now you know now every other 90s kid there now an adult was like secretly just kind of having getting their jollies on from this um but it was so it's pretty wild like i saw sugar ray in concert i saw (laughs) i saw a bad company at uh what's the weird disney like party destination like it's almost like like there's clubs and stuff after at night oh uh like downtown disney no, it's like it was a, it was its own separate thing, or at least it was in the 90s when I was there. And the, so there's like a bunch of different clubs and bars and stuff. And I forget what it was called, but randomly Bad Company was just playing on a stage outside. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it was bad. Um, all right. So since we all only remember tub thumping, um, Let's move on to our highbrow and lowbrow recommendations. Rebecca, since uh, since you didn't get to talk about a song, do you want to go first? 
Sure. Um, my lowbrow recommendation is um, assuming that everybody that is watching this show has got a Hulu subscription right now and is not using other illegal means to watch the show. Um, if you've got Hulu, you can check out the early seasons of Drag Race on Hulu, which I hate to say Drag Race is lowbrow, but it, you can't really call it highbrow. Um, but the early seasons really are something special. I think most people have kind of watched the later seasons, but there is really some amazing uh, nostalgia, especially in seasons one and two, and the budget for that show was nothing. Uh, my highbrow is a topical pick, given we're all quarantining for the coronavirus right now, and it is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. It's about a traveling symphony of uh, various musicians and actors that band together in the wake of a viral pandemic and travel around all the different homesteads that emerge in the wake of this disaster performing Shakespeare plays. And it is just a really different take on a dystopian novel, and it's wonderfully written. So I highly recommend Station Eleven for anyone that's looking that for a great. little highbrow dystopian read. Carolyn, what do you have for us this week? Okay, so um, I will start with my highbrow, and it is a book called The Woman in the Window by A.J. Finn. Um, and it is the perfect read for right now because, uh, it's basically about this like agoraphobic kind of alcoholic woman who, uh, thinks she sees something out her window, uh, her apartment. So it's kind of very like Hitchcock rear window-esque. Um, and it's a really, it's, it's an interesting thriller read. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, it's not like super highbrow, but it is a, it is a good read. And, um, I believe like Washington Post and New York Times really quite liked it. Um, and it's a really great book to read if you're a shut in and looking out your windows and kind of secretly hoping to see something, um, (laughs) something exciting going on. Not like you want to be seeing your neighbors getting murdered at this time, but at least it'd be something to pass some time. Uh, and um, for my lowbrow, I'm going to go super low and endorse something that if you've listened to this podcast, I've referenced it before, but I am a big fan of the uh, Real Housewives of New York. They're my favorite of the franchise, and they are about to come back for a new season, even though it's minus Bethany Frankel. Oh, um, no. Again, yet again, we're going to, but I've been re-watching in anticipation of the return. Um, I have kind of gone back through and been re-watching some of the older seasons, which are even more hilarious to watch them a second time. Like when that woman takes her leg off and throws it across a restaurant. Um, (laughs) Something that really happened. Uh, Yep, that happened. One of the housewives had a prosthetic leg and takes it off and... Uh, just every they go I've on never these, like, seen an episode. Oh Maybe gosh, I should yeah, start. So it's on Hulu. You can watch all yeah. of them on Hulu, and uh, I, I mean, every vacation they go on, where they just go on these like drunken fights with each other that then end with them all swimming naked together and crying and hugging each other. I mean, it's it's so spectacular. Um, so I highly recommend get into some Real Housewives. You have time right now. Do it. You won't regret it. It'll make you glad that you don't have to see your friends. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, that that is a very good point. I Brian and I watched a couple episodes a while ago because he had this idea for a blog he thought would be kind of interesting, and which led to us watching. First, we started with the Real Housewives of New Jersey, which neither of us could stand. But then we watched. <laughs> um, 
it's pro- it's the season we started watching the season of Real Housewives of New York where um Bethany's like pseudo boyfriend has just died and so she's like mm-hmm. in turmoil. Yes. That's and a I, pretty good season. Yeah, and we we haven't finished it, but it reminded me why I used to like this show because that that specifically the the New York season or the New York version of the show, I, those women are hilarious to me in a way that like none of the other other um, iterations of the show are. So I can kind of back up your recommendation. Thanks. Um, so for my highbrow recommendation, I'm going to recommend a book I just started reading called The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin. And, so good. Oh, have you read it? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm only like two chapters in or something. So the premise of this is that um, four siblings in, I think, 1969 go to see, you know, a medium slash psychic and she tells them the date they will die. And then we get glimpses into their lives going forward and see how this information, whether they believe it or not, whether it's true or not, um, how it affects how they live their lives. And I'm not that far in, so take Rebecca's uh, endorsement over mine. But so far, I really like it. And um, I'll be interested to talk to you about the ending of it, but it's really good. It's beautifully written and very compelling. But I really, I can't wait till you finish it. We have to have a sidebar because I've got a lot of feelings about it. But it's okay. it's worth reading for sure. Okay. And then my other thing is maybe not the lowest brow TV show you could ever watch, but um, I, um, I think it ties in nicely with this episode of Little Fires Everywhere. Um, it's called I'm Not Okay With This, and it's on Netflix. Have either of you watched any of this? I have seen, I have seen it. Like, it's popped up as a yeah. suggestion. So it's a show about a young girl who is living, she's recently moved to this small town. She has basically one friend. And um, I guess you don't, you know it pretty early on, though it's a little bit spoilery, but she's also wrestling with her own sexual identity. And, um, but at the same time, she's also discovering she has this weird um, sort of superpower that she can't control. And, you know, I watched an episode and Brian came in halfway through and he was like, when is this supposed to take place? Is it the 90s? Is it the 80s? I'm like, I honestly have no idea. There's not that much context here. And then all of a sudden you realize that, oh, smartphones and Instagram exist in this world. So it's actually sort of up to date, but with a weird retro feel about it. So I think if you like uh, surly teenagers and a time that doesn't feel exactly like modern times, it's it's pretty interesting. It's really funny. The actress, I forget her name, but she was in It. She played the girl. Yes, I was going to say, I recognized her in the trailers mm-hmm. that I saw on Netflix as the girl. Um, the She looks kind of like a young Amy Adams. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really funny. I like it. It's not that lowbrow if you're looking to... After you watch The Real Housewives of New York, you can uh, clean your palate with this show. (laughs) Um, But with that, it's time for us to take a break from our closets and then come back to talk about episode four. See you soon. 